coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. But the first thing is the interest is growing. People are getting the notion that there's something going on that they don't know much about. But for example, at the major German conference for, for psychiatric and neurological research, which is held once a year, some Gerd Gründer, my husband, a few other people from around our group spoke to a very large crowd of psychiatrists and they had around 1,000 people in the room and another 1,000 watching on another screen. And at the end of this talk, there was also a, a panel discussion with some addiction specialists because in Germany, we're still fighting this stigma that psychedelics could bring about addiction, which mm. is not applicable, but people still believe in it. At the end of that panel, we asked the audience, so would you now be in favor of these medications being researched for therapy? And there was like an overwhelming response of 85 to 90% raising their hands saying, yes, we want this investigated. So the way that Germans don't tend to be over-emotional, but more fact-based is really playing in our hands at that point. I think if you were in a different place where emotions are like on, on a higher level in the, in the public, it might be more difficult because uh, if you've got good arguments, People will give you a try. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. If there was ever a people who understood the importance of evidence-based healthcare, it's the Germans. And they are starting to get very interested in psychedelic medicine. Today, our guest is Dr. Andrea Jung-Abela, co-founder of the Mind Foundation, a research center and nonprofit advocacy group for psychedelics in Berlin. On the show, we discuss the current landscape of psychedelic-assisted therapy in Germany. Andrea shares about the importance of evidence-based care and the forthcoming 144-person psilocybin study episode on which the MIND Foundation is a collaborating partner. She details MIND's augmented psychotherapy program, as well as the Insight Conference. Finally, Andrea speaks about her book, Yoga, Tea, and LSD, and her passion for using psychedelics to work with end-of-life anxiety. Andrea is a co-founder and board member of the Mind Foundation. She also serves as Ovid Health Systems Medical Director and Mind's Director of Collaboration and Media. She is a clinical specialist in anesthesia and emergency medicine and currently training in cognitive behavioral therapy. She is a certified kundalini yoga teacher, has participated in several accredited trainings in psychedelic therapy, and is part of the episode study team preparing to treat patients in Germany's first modern clinical trial involving psilocybin. And now, here's Andrea. Dr. Andrea Jung-Abela. Did I do it right? Okay, welcome to, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It is so exciting to get to speak to you today about all of the amazing things going on in Germany, about the Mind Foundation, about the Insight Conference, and about your own interest in psychedelics and death, which is going to be really cool to talk about. So I'm so happy you're here, and welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there's so many different avenues that we could explore together. And I think the best way to start is to just start with your own interests in psychedelics. When did you first become interested in psychedelics as medicine or as transformational expansive experiences? Well, interestingly enough, my first own experiment with a psychoactive substance in pursuit of an altered state of consciousness was trying to swallow two spoons full of nutmeg when I was 13. Because I had read in uh, a magazine my parents had that the hippies, that strange group of people I didn't know a thing about, used to do that when they ran out of cannabis. What happened? Did you have an experience when you swallowed the nutmeg? I fell asleep. And I, there might have been something going on in my brain, but I never knew. And the next morning, uh, what I had provoked with this experiment was simply the first bad migraine of my life. Uh, so there was an altered set of consciousness, but it wasn't the kind I expected. 
Were you a, were you a scientific young woman? Well, it was more um, general curiosity and that feeling that the answers that people around me, adults around me, were giving me were definitely not covering all the bases I would have wanted. Yeah to be covered, the things I was curious to learn about. And I've always had this very strong feeling of connectedness and being, yeah, more than just this little bundle of bones running around in this world. That was partially perhaps because I grew up next to large forests and spent a lot of time in the forest in nature as a child. Mm. I like this picture of you not really accepting that adults have the answers and that they're really telling you the truth. Because that really kind of maps onto where we are at with the psychedelic renaissance. We're kind of at this tipping point where they've gone from this counterculture, uh, hippie thing, to now suddenly we're talking about real medicine globally. And you're part of pioneering work there in Germany. So I, I like this image of you as, as a girl by the forest, wanting to try things yourself, and then moving into this incredible foundation and all the other work that you're doing. It's really cool. Well, even at the age of 12 to 13, it seemed pretty damn obvious that adults didn't have a clue. So <laughs> even though the ones around me were pretty competent, but I think open-mindedness is very helpful when you want to learn about things, about people, about culture, about the possibilities we have as human beings in this world. Mm. Well, I'd love to trace the story of that inquisitive 12, 13-year-old girl to the creation of the Mind Foundation. You are trained as an anesthesiologist. Is that accurate? Well, I'm board certified in anesthesiology and emergency medicine, but originally my first training was bone surgery. I worked in bone surgery for four years and then via the emergency medicine got into all the other areas. And now I'm tr also training in, in, in CBT to become a psychotherapist. So I've come all the way from mending bones to working with the human psyche in the span of like 15 years. Wow, that's, that's quite the journey. How did you get from emergency medicine into an interest in psychedelics? Did you see a lot of psychedelic use in emergency medicine? That's not a consecutive process. Basically, they've been simultaneous because when I was studying at Heidelberg University, which is one of the oldest, well, it's the oldest university in Germany and one of the oldest medical faculties, I got in touch with people who at a time when it wasn't popular at all, it wasn't in the medical books, it wasn't in the literature, were kind of still yeah, preserving the knowledge of psychedelic medicine. So my, my now husband worked at the Institute of Medical Psychology and his former boss, uh, who is now uh, like uh, yeah, end of his 70s himself, I think. Uh, but back then he, he was a rather close friend of Albert Hoffman. So my now husband ended up visiting Hoffman at home. He also was at his funeral. And there was this connection to this whole idea. And when I first learned about these things around when would it have been, like 2003, 2004, still a medical student? I wasn't actually that much into the psychedelic aspect of their work, but they were the only people who cared about human beings and not just about organs, the whole faculty. Mm. That was That's originally what fascinated me, that they were looking at as people, as a, not, not only a unit of organs that you have to take care of, but saw the whole package and so when did you start imagining that you might be part of the creation of a foundation to study psychedelics? What was that transition point like for you? Well, between me and my husband, we have this joke that uh, we're a bit like parents to an unplanned baby where he's the mother and I'm the father of this baby because uh, when he came around kind of pregnant with the idea of founding mind, which was like 2015, uh, when we were already involved in this kind of work for a while. We had participated in, in the MAPS training and we had done research on use of substances and harm reduction at the University of Heidelberg. When he came around with that idea, I was totally in a different process, still trying to sort my medical work out, raising kids, like re real kids. And then suddenly this project was born. And I have to admit that it took me like a few months to fully adopt it. And, uh, but I can now 
proudly call myself a parent of this, this organization. So <laughs> it's great to be doing it. So there's the Mind Foundation, and then there's Ovid mm-hmm. Health Systems. And they are separate entities, but Mind Foundation supports Ovid. Can you explain a little bit about these two entities for our listeners, who many of whom are in the U.S. or Canada and might not be aware? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, they help each other mutually. So Mind Foundation is the German version of a B Corp. So it's nonprofit. Basically, we I, th- I hope the comparison is right. It's a nonprofit organization that has certain rights and certain duties so we can accept donations for example we are also obliged to be very transparent about where the money goes what we do we are not allowed to extract any money from the foundation everything that comes in has to be reinvested and ovid is a for profit for the simple reason that one of the things we're doing is trying to create clinical infrastructure and in germany there's no way you could run a hospital or support a practice from the basis of a non-profit. It has, it has to be structured in a profit sense, otherwise it's just not legally possible. And so besides Ovid that is trying to develop clinical infrastructure where eventually in a few years' time, hopefully we will have the first full psychedelic hospital in Germany. That's our dream. And the Mind Foundation is more about education, about bringing people together, also having sections where, for example, medical professionals, but also philosophers and artists meet among each other to discuss topics surrounding psychedelic science and culture. There's also a third project we founded, which is kind of the appendix to Ovid, or it's a big, 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 big for an appendix. So let's, let's say the, the little shadow brother, which is a practice that we're starting next week, actually, which will be the first fully um, running practice for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and other methods to work in augmented psychotherapy, so states of all states of consciousness as tools in psychotherapy. What is the title of the shadow little brother you just described that's doing the ketamine-assisted therapy? It's, we, we call it the practice for augmented psychotherapy, augmented meaning supporting psychotherapy with something else, which can be ketamine, which can be breath work, which can be stroboscopic light induction, it can be body work. So basically we're trying to put not the means by which we get into an altered state into the focus. So it's not about the substance, but it's about where we are going, about the process, because we feel that the process is far more important than the means we use. Mm, I, I really love that approach. So much of the lens is on psychedelics because they're so groovy, you know. But um, I, I love that different altered states are being included, and I think you'll be able to find some really powerful comparisons in in terms of breath work and ketamine. Whether people use a different method to get there, there may be some important commonalities. Of course, and it's also very possible to use the other more more controllable states like the breathwork or the stroboscopic light to prepare people who've never been in touch with all the states of consciousness for then going on to work with ketamine and hopefully in a few years' time also to psilocybin and MDMA if things go well. Mm. But that's still in the future, as we all know. Well, And so what is the landscape like in Germany around psychedelics at the moment? Are, are people getting excited about it? Are companies forming? Are medical systems interested in having conversations? What is it like over there in Germany? It's really interesting because for a long time, you know, Henrik and I and the people around us have been in this field for 10, 15, 20 years. And it was always what we call in German, brotlose Kunst, so breadless art, something you can't earn your living with. And we were totally surprised when suddenly things kind of started revving up. People were getting more interested. And it's not like this thing in the dirty corner that you don't talk about, but it's like becoming more, yeah, suitable topic for this discussions, for example. I was invited to an online conference that was run by the Catholic Church recently to talk about psychedelic therapy and sitting there in front of psychotherapists, doctors, but also priests presenting those ideas would have been unthinkable, unheard of a few years back. There's also the commercial interest. I think uh, a pot of honey always attracts fires. It's just the way it is. There's people who want to benefit. And it's, it's very important at this point here in Germany, as it is everywhere around the world, that we are very aware that we should not let yeah, unbridled capitalism take off in this very important 
and feet because if something so important is not handled with care, it might break under our hands. That would be a pity. Oh, absolutely. And that's why it's so beautiful that there are these different foundations around the world and different nonprofits that are trying to steward the the wise ingestion of psychedelics into mainstream culture globally. And it's really encouraging. What are some of the ways that Mind Foundation is handling psychedelics with care as they come into mainstream German consciousness? Well, one thing we do, and we're very focused on that, is that we are really trying to pioneer the topic of integration here. I know it's like a buzzword now, especially in the, in the States, but I remember when I talked to people about it like six years ago and they just went blank because they had no idea what I was on about because back then chasing the experience was still the big thing. You wanted to have the experience, getting it was difficult enough. And then this whole thing about how to integrate it, what do I do with it was actually not that important. So what we offer is, for example, a five-day workshop where people can learn about how they are handling psychedelic states, what they haven't integrated well, where the challenges are, and how they can move on to better integrate in the future. We do that without the use of substance, so people work on the experience they had previously, but we use the non-pharma methods that I already spoke about to bring about yeah, more insights and knowledge about their own process and help them prep for the future. We are also really trying to um, yeah, be a voice when it comes to communicating to the mainstream. We don't want to just let, let I don't want to bash people, but there's so many people I would consider fringe that, that are talking about psychedelics and they are giving the, the, the public or the mainstream a very difficult image. And I think it's very important that we find a way of communicating to people, even those like those guys from the Catholic Church who don't have a clue about what we're on about, in a way that is not offensive, understandable, and builds bridges. Mm. And I think one of the key components of that is offering evidence-based care and being able to show the data behind the work you're doing. How is MIND pursuing both the capture of that data and the communication of evidence-based care to the mainstream, to these different interested parties? Well, one thing is that we are involved in a corporation that is headed by the University of Mannheim and it also includes the Charité University Hospital here in Berlin, where we are now getting ready to start the first suicide and depression study here in Germany. We actually had hoped to be the very first ones to get the, the legal permission by our um, bee farm, which is the FDA equivalent, to hold such a study. Compass and MAPS seem to have taken overtaken us by a few weeks, but they also haven't started yet. It's a shame, isn't it? We really, really would have liked to be the first ones here because it's an originally German project. But uh, Compass has got permission to do their phase three trial at the other Charité campus. And this group is also working towards a MAPS phase three trial. But we are um, running our trial at those two places. And what is special about that is that we're treating a total of 144 patients with psilocybin, which makes it the second largest study after Compass's. Mm. And that's the episode study team that's doing that? That's that the episode here? study, yeah. So it's Gerd Gründer, who's the PI, and two teams at the two universities. And Mindovid is contributing, well, therapists, researchers, and general staff to support, basically. And, and so this is a, a study around the efficacy of psilocybin for treating depression. I'm, I'm yes. curious about this as someone who has suffered from depression myself and also is a psychedelic user. When I approach psychedelics, I feel like they help. I feel like it's working. I'm not sure how. How do you measure that a psychedelic is actually affecting something like depression? What are, what are some of the ways that you study that in a person? Well, if you run a study like this, it's officially testing the medication. So what is being gauged in the eyes of the um, institutions that give the permit for such a study, they don't really look at the psychotherapy around the substance. They just want to know if there's an antidepressant effect. Mm -hmm. But that is, to a certain extent, BS. You know, there's, there's never, in this kind of setting, you could differentiate this is the effect of the substance, this is the effect of the therapy. So what we do is, like in any other study that would study a an new antidepressant, we take... The, the scales that are established and um, well-evaluated worldwide, like the um, HAMD or the Madras scale to 
look at the score the patient has before treatment and to a certain fixed point after treatment. So basically, you try to put it into numbers. It tells one truth, but it only tells one truth. And we also have um, qualitative interviews we'll be doing with the patients to find out about their experience. Um, but the psychometry, so the, the, the data we're collecting and also brain imagery uh, that we're taking from the patients, at least samples of them, would be providing lots of answers. To a certain extent, pressing psychedelics into such a very fixed framework makes it possible to study them scientifically, but we all have to be aware that some of the more intuitive and more spontaneous interactions that could could be happening around these sessions are not going to be there as much. So, for example, a huge topic in the whole psychedelic treatment scene, the science scene, is touch. You know, are you allowed to touch a patient? How are you allowed to touch a patient? What if somebody stands in front of you crying his eyes out needing a hug because he's a total regressed state and he's back at the time when his mama didn't love him. Mm -hmm. What do you do to this patient if you then say, sorry, I can't hug you, it's against my rules here. So there's a, a lot to, to think about where all oh, those nice little things you put into paperwork and the reality of psychedelic treatment might well collide. And it's very difficult to find ways of making that work. Oh, that's fascinating. So when you say that... it studying psilocybin as a molecule affecting depression, does that mean that there will be no accompanying therapy in the trial at all? Or will there be therapy, but the therapy is not being a measured factor? There will be therapy. Of course, there will be therapy. And the thing is that we are now laying down the ground rules. If, because in, in, in a trial to bring a medication to market, as the one that Compass is now doing, we're not really in that because at the end of our work, there's not the trial to bring a medication to market. Also, because it's not our substance, we're working with Yusona psilocybin. But at the end of the day, those substances will go into the market, not by themselves, but accompanied by so-called REMS criteria. So by criteria that say, if you want to give a patient this substance, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to support uh, supply this, you have to offer this kind of treatment. So basically those trials that are being done around the world now are kind of coming up with the rules for the future game for a larger population of therapists. So what we try to do is manualize to a certain extent so that there is a structure because that's needed for a trial. You can't go freestyle. It's just impossible. And also the therapists, we have a total of around 15, 16 therapists that will be working in couples and there has to be a, a line to it because if everybody just does what he thinks is best, it's going to be chaotic and it's not going to be measurable. But on the other hand, there needs to be a sentiment of openness and holding space and also trusting in the process that will unfold. And if things get jumbled, you take your time to sort it out later on when you're integrating. So there's a, a mixture out of clear psychotherapy in every trial session there will be at least one fully licensed psychotherapist and a doctor if the doctor is a fully licensed psychotherapist too the second person could be a trainee psychiatrist or a trainee psychologist to, to, to combine in the mix but it's really high quality high standard and we're trying to make sure that we get this right so it sounds like in order to get actionable data you need some kind of standardization of care across the therapists. Am I accurate in thinking that? Yes. This is a problem everybody's facing in this field, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and the standardized uh, care, is there, are there particular therapeutic modalities that would be used in that capacity? Or what is the standardization of the care? Well, during the dosing sessions, when people are receiving either the psilocybin or one of the two placebos we're using, because our study is also special because we have two different placebos, one active one, which is low dose of psilocybin and niacin as the second placebo. There's The aim we're going for is minimal intervention. Mm -hmm. Let people have their experience, support them if they need support, but don't start talking to them on, in an unwarranted way, let them have their experience, they have the music, they have the eye shades, a bit like the Johns Hopkins setup, and let them just 
go through it. If they need to talk, we'll talk, but then try to bring them back to focus inwards and go down into themselves. And for the integration sessions and the preparation, there's we formulated guidelines of it would be nice to use more of those phrases, stay away from that and so on and so on. But it's uh, that's pretty open. And there's, of course, rules that are what, A, depending on general rules of psychotherapy and B, in trying not to disturb, to disturb the setting. But it's uh, also very interesting because in our work group, we have people with um, CBT training and people with depth psychology training and some people who come from a different direction altogether. But it's it's good to bring it all into one room and then see what, what we can cook up to best serve our patients. Something that I found really fascinating with MAPS's MDMA trials was that they, they were doing something similar where they weren't using a particular therapeutic modality in the sessions. But a large percent of patients started spontaneously doing internal family systems work. So the patients themselves were kind of leading this kind of therapy, kind of validating a certain kind of therapeutic modality. And learning about that was really fascinating to me because it's like, okay, what what is happening with these molecules in a therapeutic context? What what access points emerge in that space? Sure. And I think there's a lot we still have to find out. And a lot of things will only show themselves over time and with the growing amount of people who are being exposed to this kind of therapy. And we also have to remember the mindset with which the therapist enters the session is also going to affect how people are responding. So, for example, when I did the, the MAPS training in 2013, the main therapists were basically Annie and Michael Mithofer, who are now training all the other therapists. And they had a very strong couples dynamic. They were a very strong couple that invited a lot of like yeah, projections from the clients too, because they had this very strong mother and father figure aspect. Mm. If you had two far younger people in the room, perhaps the therapies would have looked different. So there's factors we can kind of control, but not quite. Mm, I find that so fascinating because in the same way that therapists bring a certain quality to a psychedelic experience, cultures certainly do as well. So it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of data comes out of John Hopkins versus what comes out of MIND versus what comes out of Switzerland. Or if they were doing studies, say, in India or China, like what, what would come out of those different cultural contexts? To me, that's quite fascinating. It definitely is. And with uh, the ZE Mannheim, the Charité Berlin, two of the really major psychiatric research hospitals have gotten involved. And by us being involved there too, there's like forming a culture between the university psychotherapy and what we are bringing more from our, um, I'm not going to call it freestyle background because that's the wrong term. Uh, Mine very strongly also stands for not doing illegal therapies. We are very much determined on not going that way, which would be possibly the easier one in the short term. But we've decided to strive for changing the role of psychedelics in society by trying to yeah, move the system from within. And that sometimes also gives us a diff or an interesting situation because there's a lot of knowledge there's a lot of science we have gathered a lot of people that are very uh, savvy in these things and on the other hand that, that we really make clear to people working with us closely that we don't tolerate uh, people holding underground therapies because if we accepted that especially here in germany that's much more conservative than the states at the moment we would really be risking our reputation and our chance to influence the movement yeah, and that kind of leans into one of my big questions here, which is just around how psychedelic healthcare is being accepted by the larger medical community. I can hear in your answer just now that that this is very important to mind. Um, mind is really keeping an eye on that culturally and in in a more conservative place like Germany. So, how do you see psychedelic healthcare in its current state being accepted by the larger medical community, and then? What, in addition to not supporting underground therapies, what, in, in addition to that, is MIND doing to kind of bring those two pieces together? Mm -hmm. But the first thing is the interest is growing. People are getting the notion that there's something going on that they don't know much about. But For example, at the major German conference for, for psychiatric and neurological research, which is held once a year, some Gerd Gründer, my husband, a few other people from around our group, spoke to a very large crowd of psychiatrists and they had around 1,000 people in the room and another 1,000 watching on another screen. 
And at the end of this talk, there was also a, a panel discussion with some addiction specialists because in Germany, we're still fighting this stigma that psychedelics could bring about addiction, which mm. is not applicable, but people still believe in it. At the end of that panel, we asked the audience, so would you now be in favor of these medications being researched for therapy? And there was like an overwhelming response of 85 to 90% raising their hands saying, yes, we want this investigated. So the way that Germans don't tend to be over-emotional, but more fact-based is really playing in our hands at that point. I think if you were in a different place where emotions are like on, on a higher um level in the, in the public it might be more difficult because uh, if you've got good arguments people will give you a try mm, mm. Um, and i just wanted to ask, answer the second part of your question that kind of where i could now kind of sneak in a comment on the, the training we're offering if you're okay with that oh actually i was about to go to training so perfect segue <laughs> okay. no, I'm, I'm very interested Ooh. in and that this is the training that's starting in may and let me just flag yes. that this is open to u.s and canadian applicants so as we talk about the training for our listeners psychedelic therapists in the u.s if you want to check out a german fact-based psychedelic training <laughs> okay and with that <laughs> with that intro yeah tell me about the training and just just another sideline, we've just accepted a participant from Canada today, from Alberta. So Beautiful. there are people coming in. You could fly over together if you wanted. So, okay. Um, the training we're offering is aligned with how we have named the practice, also called Augmented Psychotherapy Program. Because, again, we want to emphasize the process, not the means by which we get there. Our training is rather extensive. It's a three-year program. And in the first year, we focus on two things, one being non-pharmacological methods of induction of all state of consciousness and also integration, because our notion is that nobody who doesn't have a firm understanding of integration should elicit all state of consciousness in a client, mm. because then you, you might be setting something loose that you really can't work with. And uh, so what we try to do in this first year is also prepare people to be psychedelic integration therapists. After that first year, we're still in training for the rest. People should be able to see clients that have integration topics. And in year two and three, we are continuing with the non-pharmacological methods, but also are including ketamine. At the end of the day, what we would like to let people go with is three things. A, yes, we are teaching about psychedelics, about the classic serotonergic ones, basically all the, 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 the science around it, also the practical knowledge from people who have been working as psychedelic therapists in studies and legal settings. And we are also trying to get the possibility to do a healthy participant trial where our trainees could have a psilocybin experience in a completely legal setting because we, we think people need something to talk about. Their own experience, yes, but most people will have experience. But if you have one of those experiences in legal context, you can talk to your clients and, and say, listen, I had this experience in a legal context, which would be really important mm. here. People from the States is less important as time goes by because you could just say, I've been to Oregon. But, but that's not the case here at the moment. The other two things are we are teaching breathwork for individual clients so not group breathwork as in classical trainings but we want to make enable people to include single breathwork sessions in one-to-one -one psychotherapy that they're having with a client anyway so that if they hit a barrier that they can't overcome by talking then they can say okay let's go into a breathwork session next time and see if we can work this problem from a different angle and the third thing is ketamine psychotherapy which is legal in most countries around the world i think russia is an exemption and a few others but most people who come out of a training could either, if they have a medical license, practice ketamine therapy themselves or uh, team up, for example, with an anesthesiologist to provide ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Of course, our training isn't a prerequisite to do that if your legal system allows for it, but good thorough training might be helpful. Mm. <laughs> and, the, and the breathwork that you're referring to, is that like a holotropic breathwork, a la Stein Graf? Or what, what, what is the breathwork that's being offered as part of that? Well, actually, what we're doing at the moment, uh, we have a project within the Mind Foundation that is called Translating Breathwork into Sciences. And we're working with proponents of two different kinds of breathwork. So one would be holotropic, Stan Groff style. The other is uh, conscious connected breathwork. 
And these people are trying to bring in the learnings from both schools. So people who learn holotropic breathwork are very much fixated on the perinatal matrices and so on and so on. And we don't have anything against that, but we just don't think it's always necessary. And we want to put it into perspective with other explanations and also include, for example, the neurosciences around breathwork, which are definitely there. Mm. Yeah, I think that the breathwork component is really fascinating and and seeing what the commonalities from these different kind of breathwork breakthroughs with some of these psychedelics is going to be really fascinating. Of course, absolutely. And another thing that is special about our training is that we include over the full time of those three years a meditation practice that is also being supported by meditation teachers. We have, among other people, Heather Hargraves and Jeff Tarrant teaching neuromeditation to our trainees because we really think that if you want to become a therapist in something that has so much to do with people opening up to you, you really have to have your own stuff together in a good way. And it needs a thorough own reflection and an ongoing own process to be able to hold those spaces without contaminating them with your own burdens. And is the Mind Foundation currently planning to do any kind of studies around some of these features of breathwork and meditation and their relationship to psychedelics? I know it's present in the training, but do you have any juicy studies that you're plotting? Well, we're actually at the moment compiling a study we're working on together uh, with Imperial College. It's a cooperation we're having with them because they have a work group there that wants to investigate breathwork. And we're getting ready to do breathwork groups after the peak of COVID because there's nothing that causes more aerosols than breathwork. So it's not feasible for this time of the season. So let's sit this out. And once we can go back to breathing together safely in a closed space, we will uh, actually be testing breathwork and also testing the psychometrics and some other features like uh, the CO2. That is uh, such an important factor in most explanations on why breathwork works. Mm. So, the Mind Foundation is offering a lot of different ways that wisdom is being garnered and shared. So you're doing clinical trials, you're you're offering this training, and then you have every two years the Insight Conference. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about that for a moment. So it's going to be both online and in person in Berlin from the 9th to 12th of September. The, yes. the last event was in 2019. And so can you tell me about the last event? And then I understand that there's a pretty technical focus and a lot of bringing the medical community really into psychedelics. And it's kind of forwarding some of the goals that you have here about integration into the broader healthcare system. So can you tell me a little bit about how the Insight Conference is part of that broader vision? Mm -hmm. The Insight Conference is really thought and created as a psychedelic science conference. So uh, we try to bring together people from the different fields of research, from basic research, therapy research, brain imaging and whatever, and get them into a dialogue. And what we're really proud of was that last, well, the last time we did it in 2019, we had the whole, well, the place was packed. We had to send people away on the day when we started because we were not allowed to sell more tickets for because of the fire regulations. And for first conference, there was pretty good feeling. And we had 60 speakers from very renowned places bringing in very interesting topics. And what we really brought to the table there was discussions. We actually had people who did studies on with psychic therapy in different universities discuss their styles of doing therapy and open this up for the public more to understand the, the, the workings behind what people are doing, not just see the results. And it was really a pleasure to, to be hosting that. It was fascinating. And the, the, the amount of high-quality research being presented and the amount of ideas that there were, were there was, I, I loved it. And I'm really looking forward to the next one. We're having a great set of speakers already. If people want to check out the website, um, there's, there's quite an, a nice set of speakers already. And the call for papers is open. If you want to contribute, if they have interesting uh, new research, if they have new ideas, but it doesn't have to be all, all number-based. If you have good new ideas to bring to the table that conform with the scientific worldview on these topics, please be free to, to contribute. Mm, I love that. Yes, yes. for the listener, if you have new ideas that conform to the scientific <laughs> worldview... That's a that's a big you know and that's a big caveat there because 
there's a lot of psychedelic ideas out there that might not conform. But I, but I, I love, I love the way that there's this real science focus for mind and for the work that you're doing there because I think it's so important to validate to the broader healthcare model and really bring mm. these medicines to the people who need them most who might not even be aware that that psychedelic medicine could provide such incredible relief to some of these these disorders that people experience. The headline, the title we've given the next edition of this conference is called From Science to Implementation because we also want to focus in on, okay, what do we do now? If we scientifically and in those studies prove that they work, how do we actually get them to the patients? What infrastructure is needed? What solutions are being offered by the different organizations in the field? What are certain more money-oriented firms offering us. And, and I think it, it's very important to see the, the full scope and we discuss this. What's the best approach? Is it um, non-profit? Is it profit? Is it something in between? Is it both? It's something totally different that we haven't come up with yet. You know, it's really very important because those questions will become very relevant within a very short time. They already are. Mm. Absolutely. And I, and I love that a person like yourself and, and your incredible colleagues at Mind Foundation are focusing on this and stewarding it. Because what's great is that you're a scientist through and through. I mean, you're, you're very focused on the scientific model here. But you also have yoga, tea, and LSD. You know, it's, <laughs> there's another component to you as well. So for the mm -hmm. end of our conversation today, I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of your other interests around the space of psychedelics. You've written a book, unfortunately, only in German. What is, how, what is the book titled in German? Well, it's very simple. Yoga, LSD. Oh, same in German? Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, the, the, uh, fortunately, they match because I'm still hoping that Audible, who have the rights to uh, the script, are going to translate it into English and also come up with print versions because people kept keep writing to me that they want a printed version too because it's only an audiobook at the moment. Mm. So uh, it's in the making, I hope. Well, t well tell me about, and, and maybe at some point our English-speaking listeners will have an opportunity to check this out in English. Tell me about Yoga Tea and LSD. The basic idea behind this book is that we all constantly modulate our consciousness if we are aware of it or not every piece of chocolate every piece of music we listen to the people we surround ourselves with and the more obvious techniques yoga meditation ecstatic dance substances be it cigarettes be it psychopharmacological agents be it psychedelic drugs substances i don't like the word drugs psychedelic substances They are all just on, on a spectrum. It's just a lever we're moving into one or the other direction. But it's a constant thing we're doing. We're always modulating our consciousness. And I'm trying to make this clear by talking about the different methods, going from the non-pharma methods over well-known well psychotropic, psychoactive substances like nicotine and caffeine to ayahuasca, DMT, and LSD, and just putting them all there in plain view and using the same ruler to measure them out. So put them to the same tests on how difficult they are to handle, how addictive are they, what are the, the contraindications. And it's quite interesting when you do that because people end up really shocked that those household substances they're so used to, like nicotine or alcohol, are so much more dangerous over time than yeah, most illicit drugs. It's funny how that works. You can't Absolutely. trust the adults. Can't trust what they tell you is good. <laughs> Too busy trying to make a buck. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it from an early <laughs> But now age. I'm the adult, yeah, you know? No. <laughs> now you can't trust yourself. And I, I've got my, my kids who are asking the, the, the really hard questions from time to time. So, <laughs> so mm -hmm. another key interest of yours is around the death process. And, mm -hmm. and that's something that, you know, There was that first Michael Pollan article in 2014 called The Trip Treatment, and that was focusing on end-of-life anxiety for psilocybin. I personally haven't heard that much around psychedelics and end-of-life lately. It seems to be more focused on PTSD in veterans, depression. I haven't been seeing as much. And I was really interested to know that this was a passion of yours, the idea that psychedelics could help with our understanding of the death process. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your passion for this subject and what some of your philosophies are around the, the efficacy of psychedelics for, for mm -hmm. kind of doulaing the death experience. 
Well, well firstly, there are trials around psychedelics and end-of-life anxiety, one being the rather large trial by Peter Gasser in Switzerland, who's doing an LSD for end-of-life anxiety trials, his second. As far as I know, he's been having 40 patients and they're almost finished. And they see great results. And I'm not surprised because one thing I, I really believe to be true is that psychedelics give us a glimpse at what is really important in life and at existential questions, you know. And the most existential situation we all face is our death or the death of people close to us. And yet we will all face it. It's the one thing that is really clear. We are all not getting out of this alive. We can be sure about that. It's just a question of when and how. And that's why I also believe that psychedelics and the psychedelic experience are great for being in touch with these topics. The way, for example, that psychedelics invite you to surrender to a process you can't control, to, to, to be in a situation that is overtaking you, whatever you do, at this point, you're not, not going to control it is pretty close to what eventually will happen when you die. You will lose control, first of your physical functions, then of your, your, your mind, and it will be a, a slipping out of exactly that control that will mark your passing. And I honestly believe that psychedelics are really great agents, both for learning that, A, what it feels like to give up control, Or being having the control track taken away from you if you try to resist, which is the far worse way of having the experience usually. But also this experience of not being that important. Ooh. You know? <laughs> oh, say it ain't so. It's it's really the, the, the case. You know, we are all so prone to taking ourselves 100% seriously our view of the world our emotions our needs um our thoughts we are totally a totally identified with all this and b we believe it's the most important thing of the world in the world and i find it really interesting that if you look at death it's the end of your universe but only for you because all the rest still stays And if you get into touch with deep psychedelic experiences, you might be able to experience that, your position in the whole system. What happens if you detach yourself from all the things you believe make you you? It's all out there. It's all out there to be explored. And if you look at the, the reports from people who with terminal illnesses who did this end-of-life anxiety therapy with either psilocybin or LSD, this notion of A, being somehow connected to things around you and B, not being a solid structure, but in contact of in something more. It's like, you know, the be, being the drop in the ocean is, is something that has helped many people a lot. And these people were still dying, but they were less afraid. They were less prone to rumination. They were less depressed. And that's life quality. My my grandmother's passing was aided by psychedelics, not psychedelics that oh, wow. she took. Not psychedelics that she took, mind you. Ah, my okay. grandmother died at 99 years old a year ago. She had been a gardener her whole life and an atheist her whole life. And um, just before she died, I talked to her about ayahuasca, and I told her that I had had experiences with ayahuasca where the plants had explained to me that we were part of something bigger. And I basically explained to her in vivid detail what the plants had told me. And then I went back to San Francisco and I heard from everyone in my family who was still in Santa Fe that my grandmother seemed different and seemed a lot happier. And I don't know how much that really fundamentally changed things, but I believe that the idea that the plants have something to say can be really powerful for someone in their end of life who haven't found traditional religious stories to be resonant with them. And for my grandmother, the idea that a plant had expressed to me this idea of oneness and connectivity and a kind of continuation of, of being through a greater tapestry of life, her hearing that and feeling the truth that I felt it to be true from my own psychedelic experiences 
had a really lasting impact on her and I believe aided her in her end of life. But I have to say, I would extract also a different message from what you've just been saying. Not everybody has to have his own psychedelic experience to benefit from the psychedelic realm. It's very important that we don't get into this idea of if only we put LSD into the water supply of New York, everybody would be better. No, because it's not for everybody. Like nothing is for everybody. You know, you will find people who, uh, you know, there's, there's people who are intolerant to gluten. Even bread isn't for everybody. So how should psychedelics be? You need a certain mental setup. You need a certain openness. You need a certain resilience to also cope with difficult experiences. And I think that narratives around those experiences are, in fact, at the base of many organized religions, but have been perverted. Mm. So I think, I think to a certain extent, those notions of being connected to something bigger, what's our purpose in life, where are we going, where are we coming from, are big questions. And some of us can answer them in meditation. Some of us can answer them in psychedelics. And some can't answer them at all without the help of somebody helping them. And to, to a certain extent, I really feel that a point where the psychedelic community is not fully accepting its responsibility is this talking to those who don't have the experience. It's not about forcing your ideas on Uncle Sam who doesn't want to hear because he wants to drink his blood and put it on his MAGA cap, you know, but it's, there are people out there who would, where, like, for example, my own mother, she would never use a substance herself. But we have had so many conversations over the years about my experiences that they have really also shaped ideas in her. I think that's absolutely true and profound. And that's very much the case with my grandmother and, and actually with other members of my family who I don't think psychedelics would be appropriate for them, but they see the effect that my work with plant medicine has been for me and also what I bring to them. And I like the idea that, that one of the values of, of plant medicines and psychedelics are that they can actually help heal ancestral trauma. There's interesting research that is being conducted on that. And there's the new Mount Sinai Psychedelic Center, um, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who I'm actually speaking to tomorrow for this podcast. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, wow. is, yeah. And she's very focused on epigenetic ancestral mm. trauma. So the idea that we don't all need to do psychedelics, but there's a lot of work that can be done, not just for yourself, but for your whole community when you do that work. And the psychedelic therapists and folks like yourself who are working on these incredible foundations and doing these trainings and doing these conferences are all facilitating the extraordinarily difficult work of those patients who are having the psychedelic experience. You know, those patients are coming in and they're doing the work and they're being supported. But I could also just, before we leave this topic on how psychedelic experiences can aid other people. I would just like to add a very personal story. When I was born, my mother suffered very severe postpartum depression and she was very sick for months. And this has been a burden on her because she always felt guilty that there was a time in my life when I really needed her where she could not relate to me in the way she as the loving person she is would have loved to relate to me. And the interesting thing was that within one of my own experiences, I, I I came to see that situation and experience it from her side and feel her pain in not being able to connect to me, to, to love me in the way she would have wanted me, to support me in the way she wanted to support me and be there for me. And when I came out of the experience the next day, I, I talked to my mum and told her about this. And I said, well, mum, I, I, I understood how difficult this was for you. And then she said, so I can stop feeling guilty? And I said, yeah, you can stop feeling guilty. It's okay. So, wow. And, yeah. That's really These things beautiful. are possible. Yeah. What a great story to kind of land our, our beautiful conversation today. I love that. And mm -hmm. I love the message that the psychedelic work is not just for the patient and it's not for everyone, but it has its ripples. And let's hope that through the wise stewardship of folks like yourself and others, that we are creating ripples not just in people's lives and in people's families, but in cultures, in systems, in the capitalist system itself. Let's create ripples and help change things for the better for everyone. I think that will definitely be possible. 
But I also think we have to be, yeah, conscious about what we're doing. We have to be aware that we are challenging people very deeply. You know, we're challenging people's beliefs in a sense that might be difficult for them to bear. And I once was told by somebody who's very experienced these things, be gentle on yourself. Well, it's about being gentle on ourselves, but we also have to be gentle on those who are just learning about this. We don't need a crowbar to break down the door. It's a gentle knock and a nice smile. And then people might start talking to us. And if we are inviting enough, we make them curious. And curiosity is definitely what did it for me when I started this path. So if we manage to make people curious, we're definitely on a good way. Oh, that's, that's such a beautiful invitation. So just before we finish today, I wonder if you have any choice words of advice, encouragement, or just any kind of insight for the psychedelic healers, therapists, and aspiring psychedelic practitioners listening to this podcast. So I just want to give you a moment to speak directly to those those healers, those practitioners, and share what you'd like them to know. Ooh, that's a challenge. Wow. Um, the situation we're in it's very hard for those who know that they could do a good job if only they were allowed to use those means they have learned about. But we also have to be aware that at the time we are living in now, if we are not careful, if we make use of these tools too openly or too without really, well, being sure about what we're doing, we might actually harm more than we help because we might help individual people, but we might also harm the whole process of making these substances available for everybody. And in the sense that Matt Johnson from Johns Hopkins is saying that he thinks uh, psychedelic therapy is therapy under a magnifying glass, we should be aware that these tools don't do the job. You have to be a seasoned psychotherapist. You have to be very aware of the dangers when you want to use these substances. That's, for example, one of the reasons why I'm definitely just, just being co, a co-therapist in this trial here in Germany, because I don't, I, I'm not yet trained for all this to the full extent that I would take over responsibility. If you are not a good therapist, psychedelics won't make up for it. And you should never attempt on treating things with psychedelics that you would not dare to treat without, because they're not the shortcut to making therapy work. They're just a tool. They are an important tool and one with its own will. You can't fully control it. And that's why you always should be able to make up for that lack of control of the substance by your own therapeutic skill if it becomes necessary. Let's not believe that if you don't have training in psychotherapy, buying a pack of mushrooms is going to make you one. Because that's definitely not the case. Let's train ourselves. Let's question ourselves. Let's go into our own processes before we aid other people's processes. And then hopefully in 5 to 10 to 15 years, we will really have solid understanding of what it needs to be a psychedelic therapist. But we're not there yet in most cases. We're working on it. And it's, it's work in progress. And there will be mistakes too. And there will be accidents. And we have to be aware of all this. And be honest about it and move on together, hand in hand. That's beautiful. What a great invitation. And and if you'd like to move forward in your psychedelic therapy, there's this training coming up in Germany. Check it out. Uh, where can people find out more information about that training, about the conference, about Mind Foundation, about you personally? Where can we send our listeners to learn more? Well, the webpage of the Mind Foundation has the links to all those subsites, including the training. The webpage of Mind is mind-foundation.org. And there you'll find everything in English and now also in German because we try to appeal to the home market a bit too. We were very focused on the English-speaking environment up until now. But the training is there. The conference is there. There's uh, links to lots of talks that we had in our Mind Academy. And I think there's, there's a treasure trove for people to, to check out. Beautiful. And we'll have all those links in the show notes. Dr. Jungaberle, did I do it right? Almost. 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 Jungaberle. <laughs> Dr. Jungaberle. Yes. Such perfect. a pleasure to have your wisdom <laughs> and your precise mind and your humor 
on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast today. It's really been a joy chatting with you and getting to know you. And I wish you just such blessings in in the precise nature of the work that you're doing in transforming the German healthcare system and transforming the world with the work that you and, and all of your colleagues at Mind Foundation are doing. Thank you. Thank you very much for yeah having this conversation with me. And I hope I'll see more of you at some time. Perhaps we did the conference. Let's see. Yeah, well, what, COVID permitting, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going to be, but I would love to attend the conference. I need to brush up my science chops a bit. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, you'd be very welcome. Have a lovely time. Okay, bye. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.